going to read the Bible now. We're going to be reading uh, Zechariah chapters 5 and 6, and then we'll be reading from John chapter 2. Let me pray for us as we start. Our great God, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the glorious hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's read the next few visions from Zechariah in chapters 5 and 6. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, Every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who, who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up and see what is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia, to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in, in its place. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses towards the west, and the one with the dappled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedediah, who have arrived from Babylon. 
Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Josedach. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jedidiah and Hen, son of, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey, obey the Lord your God. And now we'll read from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple courts, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Good morning. Uh, good to see you all here today. We are going to be in Zechariah 5 and 6. And on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline that you can follow along. Uh, <clears throat> One of the things I was thinking this week is just how good it was uh, being when I was a child. So good being a child. Uh, lots of time with friends, less responsibility, uh, lots of wonder, you know, seeing things for the first time, and lots of great stories. And I, I think it might be stories that I miss the most. I miss the stories that were just stories, stories that had no real agenda. You know, dragons and dinosaurs, the famous five, adventures and mysteries, stories. I loved it. But now, as an adult, most stories, well, they have an agenda. Uh, most stories, whether it be a book, a TV show, or a movie, they're often quite dark and disturbing. They're filled with violence, sex, and lies. And kind of with a bit of a paradox, these stories both mourn a world without God, and they also celebrate a world without God. In many ways, when you just think about what entertains us, it seems that a life without God rules, that sin rules. As Tala said, we are in this minority culture where it looks like sin wins. 
you know, if, you know, forget about our stories or entertainment for a moment and think about your own character. For me, most mornings, I start by praying to God and I often begin with a time of saying sorry. And I can tell you now, there's never been a morning where there's been nothing for me to say sorry about. You know, our culture, our characters, or my character, it can sometimes appear that sin wins. And I think this can lead to, well, it can probably lead to heaps of things. I'm just going to choose two things that start with A, uh, apathy and anxiety. I think it can lead to apathy towards sin. Because sin is the air we breathe, we can sometimes become apathetic towards sin, uh, towards the things that we know displeases God. Or anxiety. Anxiety over our standing before God because we're so aware of our own sin. Apathy uh, towards sin, anxiety over our standing before God. I think these are two things that uh, you know, a sin-filled culture can lead us towards. But God does have a word for us today. It's a word he spoke through his prophet Zechariah. It's a word that was spoken around about 500 years before Jesus. And it's a book that we've been looking at to start 2022 together. It's a book that's pretty wonderful. It's filled with weird visions and long speeches. It's a book that may be a little bit unfamiliar, even as you were listening along then. But with a bit of careful reading and God's spirit at work, there is a really clear theme. God is returning to his people to dwell with them, and his people must return to him. Return to, I, God returns, we return to him. And that's the kind of news that God's people at the time really needed to hear. Partly because they needed to be spurred on to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. They needed to rebuild the temple because that's where God was going to return to. But I wonder as well if this was an important book for them, for their own apathy and anxiety. You just think about it, for at least 70 years they've lived under the rule of a foreign king. Uh, they've seen sin win. They've lived under God's judgment in exile. You know, it might have been easy for them to become both apathetic and complacent, or maybe really anxious, unsure that once God returned, would sin maybe still win in the end? But in today's passage, God speaks, and he makes what, known what will happen when he returns. Uh, if you've been with us, you'd know now that the first six chapters of Zechariah, there are eight visions, these kind of strange scenes that play out in front of Zechariah. Uh, we've looked at six so far, and today we're going to... No, we've looked at five so far, and today we're going to look at the last uh, three. Uh, you know, when you read all these visions of one go, it can be like you're sitting too close to a TV screen, and all these images are kind of just flashing in front of you, and you don't know what's happening. But if you just take a, a sit back a bit, uh, you can start seeing there's a pattern to these visions. And this is an image that's taken from Barry Webb's commentary, and it kind of helpfully shows you the pattern. In the first three visions... Is God's return and the building of his house. And the middle two visions that we came to last week, uh, there's a slightly different turn. There's a focus on two leaders who are closely connected to the building of the temple. And then in the last three visions, the ones that we have today, are the inverse of God's return. The focus is on sin departing and his rule spreading. It's kind of like as God returns, he is light and as light returns, it dispels darkness. And the point today, which I really hope we all can walk away with, is as God returns, sin departs and his rule spreads. As God returns, sin departs and his rule spreads. And that sort of truth will kill complacency towards sin. 
and acts anxiety over sin as well. So first thing, sin judged. Uh, this week, I saw this rather clever church sign. I don't know if anyone else maybe saw this being posted around. Uh, now, if someone had made this sign two years ago, it would not have been clever. <laughs> you would have thought, hmm, graphic designer having a bad day. Uh, but uh, you might, you know, there's this weird format, green, yellow boxes, grey boxes. But today, with our current Wordle fad, this sign kind of makes sense to us if you have gone on to Wordle. Uh, the visions in Zechariah are similar. Uh, they're pretty weird. But when you consider some of the Old Testament background, they start to make a little more sense. Our first vision today involves this big flying scroll, something like nine metres by five metres. I don't know if this is right, someone can tell me later. I reckon it's about half the back wall. So it's a, it's a big, big scroll. And this scroll, it flies out and it goes over the whole land. On one side, there's a curse saying, every thief will be banished. And on the other side, another curse, everyone who swears falsely Will also be banished. Unlike God's house that has been rebuilt and will be completed, verse 4, the house of the thief and the one who swears falsely, their house will be completely destroyed. That's our first vision. Uh, what does it mean? Well, in the Old Testament, another time a scroll is mentioned in the book, is in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is another of God's prophets. He had a really sad job. I've been reading it recently. It was a really hard job. He was proclaiming God's judgment against God's people. And at one point, God instructs him to take a scroll and write on it all the words of judgment he has said concerning his people. And so I reckon this scroll today is connected to God's word and to God's judgment, particularly his judgment against his own people. But this scroll is different from Jeremiah's. It's flying. It does not rely on a human to carry it has no place that it cannot access. It's not a slow word, but it's a swift word, and it passes over the whole land. It's important there, it's not the whole earth, just the whole land. Uh, this word is for God's land, God's people. It's a word for God's people concerning the thief and the one who swears falsely. Commandment seven, you shall not steal, Commandment 9, you shall not give false testimony. Uh, both these commandments concern how one treats another. Stealing robs someone of a thing. To give false testimony robs someone's character. The question is, why did God choose these two commandments to pick on out of, you know, 10? And I wonder, I wonder if it's because these were the things God's people had not yet completely repented of. So Zechariah 8, 16 to 17 uh, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear, swear, <laughs> swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. So now God speaks his word, his swift word, and he judges their sin they have not yet completely repented of. Just like his word from the past brought curse on those who broke his covenant, the same word brings curse on those who continue in sin, who continue not to repent. If God's people remain in sin, or maybe, if you want to put it like this, if God's people are defined by sin rather than God's word, then his word will completely destroy their house. You know, that's the sort of message that does kill complacency. God does come with mercy, but when he comes, sin departs. 
I just think about Jesus Christ. When he came, he found at his temple, God's temple, the things that were written on in this scroll. He found thieves as people bought and sold in the temple market, in the temple courtyard. In another place in the Bible, he called his father's house a den of robbers. And he found Pharisees who swore falsely by God's name because they did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so what did he do? He tore down the house. He threw over tables. He drove people out. And when he died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. It was destroyed. And when God comes, sin is judged and sin departs. That, that kills complacency. But for us today, there is also comfort because while we deserve curse, the beautiful truth is this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, Galatians 3.13. Christ comes, sin departs, curse is removed. Anxiety over sin is axed. That's our first vision, vision two. Uh, sin is removed. Uh, we used to have a book at home that was kind of filled with really glossy and colourful pictures. Uh, so, you know, for one example, you'd have a double spread of these really kind of bright rubber ducks. Uh, but the thing is, one of the ducks was either facing the wrong direction or maybe one of its eyes was closed. Uh, that duck did not belong. And, you know, we'd read it with our kids and it was fun kind of watching them work out. That's the duck that does not belong. And I think this next vision reveals that sin truly does not belong among God's people. If we see it, it should kind of stand out because as God returns, sin is removed. So this vision, there's a basket and this basket has a cover of lead. The cover of lead is then raised and out comes a woman. She's pushed back down into the basket and the cover of lead is once again covers the basket. And then we are told in verse 6 and 7, the basket and woman represent iniquity and wickedness. Now a basket was often used in trade and so maybe this basket represents some of the dodgy deals people were making, which ties back to the first vision. You know, thieving and swearing falsely seemed to be a bit of a problem. The woman, I'm not as sure, but in Proverbs, uh, foolishness at times is personified as a woman who tempts and misleads. Uh, in Revelation, a woman, more like a prostitute, is used to describe the world that opposes God and seduces God's people away from God. So what is kind of clear, though, is a, this basket and woman represents everything that opposes God, wickedness and sin and evil. That's the first part of the vision. But after seeing the woman in the basket, Zechariah then sees two more women, this time with wings like storks. They lift up the basket and they carry it to the country of Babylonia, where there is a house ready and there it is set in place. It's a pretty bizarre image. I'd say it's for me, the most bizarre one of all of them. And strangely, it connects with things to do with God and his temple. So in the past, God's glory dwelt in his temple, and at the centre of his temple was a box and kind of thing, and it had a cover on it, and it represented God's dwelling with his people. But as a result of sin, God's glory departed the temple. And in Ezekiel, this is described as winged heavenly creatures coming and transporting God's glory away. You see how it sounds a bit familiar to this vision? Because in this vision, as God's glory now returns, we have the opposite of these things. We have an anti-ark, the basket with the cover. 
We have anti-heavenly creatures, two winged women with stork wings, storks being unclean animals. We have an anti-temple, the house to which the basket was taken. And the place where it's set up in verse 11, that's the language used of setting up an idol, an anti-God. The scene shows us that sin and wickedness are anti-God in the extreme. Sin and evil does not belong amongst his people. It does not belong anywhere near his house. Humans, you know, me, might be complacent with sin, but when God returns, sin departs. When Christ returns, there will be no place for sin in his kingdom. Revelation 21.8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That ought to kick complacency. But where's the comfort? Where's the comfort to axe our anxiety? Well, the comfort is in the cross. See, I've been saying it a few times now, God returns, sin departs, but the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself is there. But unlike any point in history, sin is laid on him and it doesn't depart. Not until the punishment of sin is completely paid. Not until God's anger is completely extinguished. This was done so that sin might be removed from you and from me. Acts anxiety. Sin has been removed. Vision three, vision three, <clears throat> last vision. But before we get to the last vision, we've got to go back two weeks in our memories, the first vision we read about. In that vision, there were horses that acted like God's heavenly patrol. They went out across the whole earth and found the world at rest. And while that sounded pretty good at the time, it caused God's people distress because the world opposed to God deserved punishment, not peace. Now again we have horses, but this time they are chariots, weapons of war. Uh, they are described as powerful, verse 3. Last time the horses surveyed the world, now the horses go to fight. And they come from between two bronze pillars. It's likely that these two bronze pillars actually refer to two huge bronze pillars that were the entrance of the old temple. And so it's like these chariots come out of the temple. They come out of the place where God dwells. And they come to do his bidding. And Zechariah thankfully asks, what are these? And the angel replies in verse 5, they are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. Unlike our previous two visions that seem to focus on the land, God's people, these horses go throughout the whole world. And there's this emphasis that they go towards the north country, verse 8, because it was from the north that some of their greatest and most powerful enemies came. And it was to the north that the woman in the basket was transported. And so these horses go, and the angel calls to Zechariah in verse 8, unlike in the first vision, that his spirit is at rest. The implication being that the enemy has now got what they deserved. Justice has been done. A final defeat has occurred. As these horses go, God's rule spreads throughout the whole world. For God's people who had experienced exile, for God's people who had sat by the banks of Babylon and wept for Zion, this vision said, the end of evil is near. 
it's the kind of vision that makes me think of the final scene in an epic movie, whether it's Star Wars and the Empire is being destroyed, or it's Avengers and Thanos is defeated, or it's Sauron in Lord of the Rings and he's no more. After these defeats, there's these scenes displaying the relief of a hero, uh, and, it, and it's almost tangible. The rest that comes after the defeat has been won, and evil is no more. That's what this vision says. The defeat of enemies is sure. Brothers and sisters, the end of evil is near. I tell you the truth, because the end began when Jesus Christ was crucified and was raised to life. He dealt a deadly blow to sin, the devil, and death. Enemies defeated. Ax your anxiety. Know that sin has been dealt with. But also, kick your complacency, because Jesus will return, and at that point, his rule will be complete. At that time, sin will be fully and finally judged, and it will have no place in his kingdom. Let's just do a time check. Oh, yeah, we can do this. Uh, we've got one last thing, one last thing. Uh, that's the end of the eight visions, and I think these visions were used by God to spur his people to action. They were given a task, rebuild the temple, but the project had come to a standstill, and so God needed to speak to them. He had to kickstart them. He had to bring life to his lifeless people. And you know what happened? God used Zechariah's words and Haggai's words, and the project was kick-started. The, the temple got completed. But there was a problem. A lot of what Zechariah promised did not happen. And I imagine that would have caused God's people, well, one, a bit of disappointment, but also, by faith, it would have caused them to look further forward to a new temple, to a better temple. And I think that might be what the last part of chapter 6 is doing. Because there's not a vision here, but there's this little ceremony that takes place. Zechariah is told to take some silver and gold from some of the returned exiles and to make a crown. And then he takes this crown and he puts on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And then these words are spoken in verse 12. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne. There will be harmony between the two. Now, I wonder if you heard that read. You, you thought, oh, there's a bit of a problem. Especially if you were here last week, chapter 4. Because God made it very clear that Zerubbabel would be the one who would build the temple. But now Zerubbabel is not even present in the scene. He's completely in the background. Instead, we have Joshua, a high priest, crowned as king. And that, that is a big, big no-no uh, kings and priests, they were always to keep their jobs separate. But now there's a priest king who sits on the throne and who will build a temple. A priest king who is the branch, a descendant of God's King David. Now this ceremony was so important that God didn't want them to forget this ceremony. And so there was a crown that was placed as a memorial in the temple. Now what is going on? I wonder if God is helping his people. You could almost imagine them coming to the temple that Zerubbabel completes, and they're disappointed. They bow their head in disappointment, and then their eyes catch a look at the crown. The crown that was placed on a high priest's head. And they remember that a promised high priest would come. He would build a temple. 
And that temple would be a sign of God's abounding mercy and his jealous love. That temple would terrify enemies. That temple would cause sin to depart. That temple would cause sin to be judged, sin to be removed, and sin to be repented. That temple is Jesus Christ. And he is the priest king who sits on the throne. And so, Narenburn 10 a.m., remember our priest king. We live in a minority culture. We live in a culture where God is ignored, in a culture where sin seems to have won. We live in a world where we confess our own sin daily, knowing our weakness. So remember the priest king who has come. He sits on the throne in majesty. He bore our curse. He removed our sin. He has defeated sin, death, and the devil. Remember him. Cure complacency. Axe anxiety. Remember the priest king who has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the priest king who has come. Thank you uh, that he bore our curse. Uh, Thank you that he has defeated our enemies. And thank you that by him sin has been removed. Might we remember him uh, and cure our complacency and axe our anxiety, you know, in the comfort of the cross. Amen.